Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I think there's a misconception among Americans. I'm sure you've had family or friends say to you that like, oh, we had this sushi from this place and it was like, it was fresh. It was right off the dock. The misconception there is like fresh fish isn't always best. I'm Dalia Colon and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, we're tackling some of our 2023 foodie goals with food and drink writer Charlie Crespo. Whether you want to explore new restaurants, hop onto some of this year's biggest food trends, or maybe try your own hand at food writing, Charlie is here to show us the way. Whether you're an aspiring food influencer or you just want to order with more savvy at restaurants, Charlie Crespo has some advice. The Miami-based food and drink writer's work has appeared in publications including Pipette Magazine, Infatuation Miami, Indulge Miami, Venice Magazine, and more. I recently spoke with Charlie about tips for up-and-coming food writers. He also reveals his favorite burger, croissant, my favorite, and under-the-radar Florida restaurants. Then he predicts some food and drink trends to look out for in this new year, including dry-aged fish. Here's my conversation with Charlie. I graduated from college with a, I was an English and philosophy major. I wasn't sure about what I was going to do. I ended up interning with a lifestyle magazine that was based in Fort Lauderdale and covering that region of the state. As you might expect, they were really focused on covering fashion or home decor. And I noticed while I was interning there that there wasn't too much coverage around food. Um, So it became sort of my little niche and like the the one subject they were okay with me writing about. So it was kind of funny that it happened that way. I wasn't super interested in food before then. Um, It was something I liked, but not something I saw myself ever you know, really writing about so much. Again, it kind of happened in a roundabout way. I'm glad it worked out like that. What's the last restaurant you visited to write about? For the Infatuation Miami, I just wrote an article about the eight best croissants in Miami. Um, So I was on a very heavy carb diet for for, uh, about a weekend there. So In that article, I visited a bakery in Doral, which is in West Miami, called Caracas Bakery. They say that it's Venezuelan French inspired. So you can get a lot of like traditional Venezuelan pastries like cachitos, I think pan de queso. But they also, the the baker there makes one of the best croissants, Um, crispy, airy, flaky, buttery. It's just, it's absolutely delicious. I I think I'm in the wrong business. I'm sitting here talking to you on Zoom. I should be out eating croissants. You know, weekends are when a lot of people go out. Do you have anything on deck that you'll be checking out this weekend? I think I'll be checking out the place I've gone to before. It's called the United States Burger Service. The restaurant, as you you can tell, is a pun based on United States Postal Service. They operate almost like a takeout joint, but everything is completely made from scratch. So the buns the cheese sauce, the beef blend that they use, 
everything is completely made from scratch and they have a monthly special. So they do a different pun around the burger that they do. One of the last ones I had was during the month of October and the burger was something called the, the hash slinging hasher. And that, and the joke was that they had put corned beef hash in the burger and a, and a fried potato. And it was one of the most delicious things I've, I've eaten in a while. Oh man. How do you even decide where to go? Especially in Miami, there's a million places you could eat out three times a day, every day, and still not cover everything. I know. That's, I, I think that's one of the most difficult parts about Miami is just you have so many options. For me, it tends to be something that I haven't tried before. I'm not the best in terms of like being a regular at places. So I don't go to so many places like, you know, 10, 15 times. I'm really trying to uncover new places. So there's a lot of people that I follow on social media that are sort of in the food space that might be kind of the first to know or the first to discover these new places. If I start to see something popping up on social media, then I'll go check it out. Or if I've heard from other people in the industry, maybe that, you know, have been messaging me on, on Instagram that a place is good to check out or a new place. Um, that's how I usually do a lot of my research around that. What's a place in South Florida that you think a lot of people still haven't caught on to? It's another place in Miami. It's relatively new. It's called Jolano's Deli. I think it's making probably the best like Italian style subs in Miami. And it's definitely something that most people haven't caught on to just because it's so new. It's really in like a fascinating location. It's in an apartment complex. So I don't know how they figured out the permit there. I don't know if it's completely legal. So you go into the apartment complex. It's like tucked away in a, in a little, the space must be like 400 square feet. But they are churning out some of the most fantastic pressed Italian sandwiches, I think, in the city right now. Wow. I would never have thought of an Italian sandwich in Miami as being something I had to try. And I love the fact that it's in an apartment complex and I want a friend who lives in that apartment complex. <laughs> right. And that was that was the one I heard about, too. Just like I saw it, so people I know cropping up on on Instagram People were going there and it was a, a place I wanted to, to check out. Amazing. Do you have a strategy? Like, do you always take someone with you when you go? Do you dine anonymously? Do you sit down by yourself and order like 12 different dishes? What's your approach? Yeah, so I tend to dine alone when I'm trying out a new place. I definitely like to try as many of the dishes as possible. But, you know, I'm only one person, so maybe it's difficult to try 12 different things. So, yeah, I think dining alone, definitely dining anonymously. I, I have the fortune of where I'm not so popular or well-known, so a lot of people don't recognize my face. So that's something that's easier to do. But if I am, you know, uncovering, researching, checking out a different place, we'll definitely make a reservation under my wife's name. So that's that's a way that we can kind of go in as anonymously as possible. Smart. And then how do you decide what to order? Because a lot of times I'll go to a restaurant and I am a vegetarian. Mm. So sometimes the thing that they're known for, if it's like the steak or the burger, I'm not ordering that. But I will feel like, oh, I ordered the wrong thing. How do you order the right thing? 
And that's that's a really great question because I often feel like have uh, regret that I wasn't able to try everything. Um, so I think that either it's what you just said, either the what they're well known for or what they kind of are suggesting is their is their best dish or their go to dish. Because if if that's what the restaurant is suggesting that that's the thing they they want to be known for, and it's not great then I think it's okay to the, like then say, well, maybe the other things on the menu aren't as great. So I would definitely order the thing that the restaurant is known for first. And then if it's great, you know, definitely try other things. But if it's not so great, it's okay to move on to something else. Yeah, I noticed too, you can ask the server and of course they're going to say everything's good, but it's mm. like how they say it. Like, how's the spaghetti? Oh, it's Okay. You know, yes. and then you ask, how's the steak? Oh, yeah, that's my favorite. I would definitely go with that. <laughs> yes, that's a that's, you know, that's a really tricky thing, too, because like you said, the servers can have kind of give away great clues, but you also have to be conscious of like, are they steering you toward the most expensive thing on the menu to try to get their total bill up so they can hopefully that you will tip more. Mm. It's a tricky game with them to read them. I never thought about that. Okay, I'm going to have to watch for that now. Any other tips before we move on? Do you have any other advice for aspiring food writers? How can they break into the game? Yeah, I have a few actually that I, that I was thinking about. I think the first tip is to really try to focus your writing and your pitches on finding smaller publications. Because one thing, it's great to be in Bon Appetit or Savour or Food and Wine, but it's really, really hard to get in those publications. They're getting a lot of pitches. As a food writer that's starting out in the industry, I don't even know that that would be a good thing for, for you to be in that publication, that level of publication, like right off the bat. Just because if it's a newer concept to you, a newer thing that you're starting to write about, you might want to get some practice in the kind of smaller publications that are more willing to accept just starting off in that space. I think another one is just to be easy to work with, you know, be on time with your edits, meet your deadlines. Don't fight too strongly about certain things that your editor might push back on because if it's your first time working with an editor and they see that you're sort of difficult to work with, you don't meet deadlines, you're fighting about the definition of is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it can it can get very they're they're unlikely to probably call you back or to seek you out um, or to accept another pitch of yours. Those are great tips. And I've done a lot of freelance writing, not in the food space, but just kind of in general. And especially what you said about targeting smaller publications is true because some of the big fish, it might be like a one and done. You'll be in the New York Times once or twice, but the smaller publications could hire you to write a column every month. Exactly. And I think that the last point I wanted to make for an aspiring food writer is to try not to pigeonhole yourself early on. If you want to make vegan food your beat, try as hard as possible not to come out of the gate and write your first seven articles about vegan food. Because then when the time comes and you might want to pitch an idea about 
croissants, to go back to our earlier discussion, the editor might think of you as, oh, that's the person that only writes about vegan food. So why are they writing about croissants or why are they writing about dried steak now? I only would turn to them to to be an expert on vegan food. So I think if you can diversify the stories that you're writing about early on, that'll serve you better in the long run, even if you know you have the the world's best take on vegan food, but but that's all you get known for. That's really great advice for more than just food writers, but a lot of different fields. Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Okay, I feel like I'm always behind on trends. I'm just getting into charcuterie and butterboards and people probably have moved on to other things, but you're out, you know, you're out in these streets all the time and you see what people are doing and what restaurants are getting into. So what are some trends we should be looking out for? So since you mentioned butterboards, I think that a trend we'll see is that artisanal butter will make an appearance. What I mean by that is like, I don't know, people putting microgreens in butter, people putting like locally made honey in butter. While that's certainly something you can choose to pay for, it's not super difficult to make a compound butter on your own that you can use. So to do that, you would just let butter soften, whip in ingredients, whether it's honey or garlic or shallots or whatever kinds of flavors you want. And then you can have your own artisanal butter, really. Oh, how fun. And that's great if you're hosting people or giving a gift because it is still pretty inexpensive, but it shows that you put a little more thought into it. Yeah, it would make a great gift. That's a really good point. Okay. So I haven't completely missed the the butter train. <laughs> <laughs> and so two other trends um, that, I, that I was thinking about would be, I think that we've already seen the the craft beer movement and the natural wine movement. Um, we've seen those things happen. They are still happening. I think the next thing in that drink space is going to be craft hard cider. So I think when most people think about ciders, they're probably thinking about like Strongbow or Magners, these kind of like more on the sweet end, more like a substitute for beer cider. Um, but there are a lot of cool producers right now that are making cider more in the style of natural wine. And so what I mean by that is they're using um, indigenous yeast, they're using native yeast, they're handpicking a lot of the fruit, they're not adding additional chemicals to it. And one of the ones that I think that people should be on the lookout for, one that I really like is a producer from Sweden called Stereo. And I may be pronouncing that wrong, so I'm sorry if I am. But they use all foraged apples and fruit that's going to be waste fruit. So they're able to use all of that fruit and all of their ciders. They all are kind of puns or takes on classic albums. So like Bohemian Raspberry, I think, was one. They did Yellow Fruit Marine, which is like the Beatles pun. 
They did one called Cider Stardust, which is the David Bowie piece. So those ciders are really great. And I also think we're starting to see that because a lot of the ciders are mostly in the like 7 to 8% ABV range. So they're not like these 14 or 15% beers or wines that people are, are often seeing. Okay, that's fun. Foraged apples. That almost sounds like a like an onion headline or like a... I know. Plant. We only make our cider from apples that fell to the ground. <laughs> I know. But, but it's a good way fun. It's a good way to reuse that fruit and save that fruit. I know a lot of their, their work, they, they found like abandoned apple orchards in Sweden. So that fruit would just be going to, to waste normally, but they're able to rescue that and reuse it. So, so that's great. Okay, you, you gave us butter and hard cider. So we're just living all of our vices. How about one more trend? <laughs> my my last trend for you was that I think we're going to start to see more dry-aged fish on menus. I think people are really comfortable with like dry-aged steak and what that means. But I think dry-aged fish is going to be something we're going to be seeing more in 2023. And I think there's a misconception among Americans. I'm sure you've had family or friends say to you that like, oh, we had this sushi from this place and it was like, it was fresh. It was right off the dock. The misconception there is like fresh fish isn't always best. What happens to fish a lot of the time right after it's killed it tends to tighten up. So the muscles tighten up. So what dried fish is actually doing is removing a lot of the moisture, letting the fish relax, and it's concentrating the flavor to it. And you can serve dry-aged fish sashimi style, in crudo style, or you can just pan sear it. But really all it is is, is concentrating the flavor down. And I think in a lot of times it removes that like that fishy smell or taste that you can get from fish. So is this fish that would have been served fresh that's now being dry aged? Because I'm thinking, obviously, seafood is big here in Florida. So is this like a grouper that was going to be part of a grouper sandwich, but now it's being funneled off for this dry aged process? When you dry age fish, it can definitely, I think it can be what you're saying. But when I'm talking about dry aging fish, it doesn't have to be a long process. It can only, it can only be, you know, four to five day process, maybe two weeks. But yes, to your point, um, I think we'll see fish that is dry aged for sandwiches, even for crudo, like I like I was mentioning earlier. I, I just think that it'll be the the next thing that we start to see on on all our menus. Everyone will want to say they have dry aged fish. Once the customer gets over, like the oh, that sounds kind of maybe a little gross to me because I'm not used to that. They'll appreciate the the quality that they're getting. Okay, well, if that's what you're seeing down in Miami, then I know it's going to make its way out to the rest of the world. Speaking of which, did you grow up in South Florida? And what are some foods that remind you of home? I did grow up in South Florida. I've spent my um, entire life here. I've been down in Miami specifically for about seven years. I think the food, because I always think of my abuela um, and, and the foods that, that she made. And I, I'm half Cuban, so a lot of the foods is like, Congrit, tostones, paca frita, ropa vieja, lechon. I think whenever I just even smell those foods, that's that's the one that I, I think of most. Brings mm. me back to my childhood, you know. Classic Miami 
foods with an abuela in the kitchen, grandma yeah. cooking up some good food. Well, it was so much fun to talk to you and I learned a lot. Thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you so much. I had a great time. It was so nice to talk to you as well. Charlie Crespo is a food and drink writer based in Miami. You can follow him on Instagram and warning, it will make you hungry at Charlie Cresp. And you can follow us at The Zest Podcast. I'm Dalia Cologne. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas and Chandler Balcom. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2023, part of the NPR Network.